Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know your lines, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the bombastically braggadocious Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who personally taught Jordan Belfort everything he knows about the stock market, Mr. Ryan Seabold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Uh, it's going well, man. Uh, I'm sure that things are going much better for you financially and with all of your portfolios having learned from someone who really understands uh, financial manipulation the way that Jordan Belfort does. I got to tell you, man, my <laughs> stocks have been getting absolutely hammered. My crypto yeah. investments have been getting hammered. So, you know, yep. I, I suppose if anything, like, uh, you know, maybe you can sort of help us out, uh, give us some tricks. Tell us a little bit about what you uh, taught to old, old uh, Jordan Belfort there. Lying uh, through your teeth, <laughs> cheating, stealing with both hands. And uh, yeah, I mean, just absolute unabashed corruption is going to get you far in this world, my friend. I think you're just trying to play by the rules too much. Mm, that is a problem. Yeah, I have been, uh, you know, just trying not to utilize insider information and all of that. So, no, uh, let man, me tell you, you got to lie. You got to cheat. You got to <laughs> steal, you know, like just live like there's no tomorrow. This is the this is the mantra of success that you just got to, you know, uh, don't don't like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to go log on and, and invest money in this stuff. No. In fact, um, I've even gone a step further now to where I'm just like stealing purses from old ladies on the street. I've even gone <laughs> way past the stock market. I'm like, I'm going deep investing, uh, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. I'm the wolf of Tampa, Florida. Like I, uh, not even cheap's clothing. I will come behind your grandma. I'll push her on the ground and I'll take her purse. It's a great investment. I mean, it costs me nothing. There's no overhead in it. <laughs> well, and that's interesting that you bring that up because I had heard that there was sort of like this scheme that you had that you were running on like older people, you know, and, and elderly right. people. I assumed it was kind of like a, you know, some sort of like shifty stock uh, manipulation, you know, give us your bank details, et cetera. But it's sounding more and more like I don't know if this is the same thing, but it's sounding more and more like maybe – what I thought was that is actually this sort of physical crime spree you're talking about? Uh, from blue chip stocks to broken hip stocks. I mean, there is just <laughs> no shortage of old people in Florida. We're God's waiting room. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's ripe for the taking. Sorry, Graham Graham. You're going down. <laughs> you're going now, down, bitch. <laughs> now, I do, I do want to go back to uh, something because I know that Jordan Belfort on one of his promotional tours was talking about like this particular scheme that he had developed on old people in Florida. And, and I had always thought that like you were probably the one that taught him that would, would you mind letting us know 
uh, you know, if not that scheme, perhaps maybe some other schemes that somebody who wanted to get started on uh, swindling old people in Florida, you know, where would it be a good place for them to start? So uh, one of the biggest investments you can make in the state of Florida that is just low cost, low risk, low investment, but real big payoff are those little strawberry candies that you can't find anywhere that are always in the candy dish <laughs> at your grandma's house. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are delicious. I love those. Right. So I've started an importing. And why can't I find those anywhere? Those literally were only at my grandma's house. Because I have bought them all. I have a corner on the market, on the strawberry candy market. I have started an importing-exporting business on these little strawberry candies uh, and the appropriate dishes that they come in. It's kind of like a... A free gift that I give if you, you know, invest so much money. It's a bit of a tiered service that I do. But, uh, you know, you, you put so much money in with the candies and then you get the dish for free. But, um, yeah, man, uh, you know, the Villages, uh, Sarasota, <laughs> North Miami, Boca Raton. I'm huge in Boca Raton in the strawberry candy market. Ain't nobody going to fuck with me. And I'm telling you, man, you can't find them anywhere, to your point, because I've uh, started importing them. They're, they're coming from Prague, believe it or not. Huge strawberry candy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I'm importing them from Prague. And, um, you know, they, they say that, uh, Prague and, uh, is one of the, the happiest, uh, places on earth that you could live from what I understand. It's <laughs> the, the, the quality of life there is so high and it's, I've directly correlated that to the strawberry candy market that they've got there. And so I've started <laughs> importing that all here to Florida. Um, and you know, they are laced uh, with a little bit of fentanyl, which, you know, does um, get people oh, hooked. I know. I know. It's a it's a risk reward thing. Unfortunately, you that's know, a, that's like such a southward turn there. Well, it was, I, mean, uh, I think it was so like, you know, I've got visions of grandma. I'm smelling right. the strawberry candies. Now, all of a sudden here they are laced with fentanyl. Well, I mean, Jeez. this is kind of the, the this is the Jordan Belfort side of it. Right. You know, this is. What what we've described so far is is Mary Kay Mona V uh, Amway, but but where we're getting into the dark side of it is the uh, addictive nature of these strawberry candies um, that will eventually take my empire down. But in the in- interim, you know, I'm doing very well financially. Uh, I can't keep people off of these strawberry candies, and. Uh, you know, one of the unfortunate side effects is it has driven people somewhat mad. You know, you hear about Florida man and stuff like that. You know, that that does happen. I could take credit for mm. probably about 70 to 80 percent of these things. It also <laughs> got Ron DeSantis elected uh, and Governor ah. Rick Scott before that. Uh, so, you know, there are some unfortunate I'll never eat things. another strawberry candy again. There, <laughs> there are some uh, unfortunate side effects, but uh, hey, <laughs> I'm just here to tell you. It started in the in the Graham Graham pushing down uh, blue hip market, and then uh, I've kind of taken those proceeds and invested it in the strawberry candy importing <laughs> and uh, exporting biz. Uh, but I'll send you some if you want to get uh, get some for yourself to keep around the house. They're, they're very delicious. Um Publicly, I will say that you can hold on to them. Privately, I will say, let me DM you, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wait. You know what? Yeah. No, I think that is actually, if I heard correctly, that's the sound of another listener mailbox from the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. Listener mailbox. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to keep doing that. Every time, dude. I love it so much. Absolutely, buddy. And... 
<laughs> now, here's the thing. So this time, you know, uh, last week we had a couple of yucksters calling in and uh, you crazy know, kids uh, just giving us the, the business, as they say. Right. This time we actually had someone listen to the episode and call in afterwards. So Could you imagine uh, this is actually I know. Right. So for anybody listening who listened to Amadeus and for anybody who didn't, there is a scene in the movie uh, that we discussed on the episode that is in the director's cut and it's not in the original cut. It involves Stanzi, uh, who is Mozart's wife, and a a move that Salieri made to sort of play her in a number of different ways, right? So we're going to go ahead. Let's listen to caller Brendan give us his thoughts on that scene. Jason, Ryan, what's up? It's Brendan from L.A. Huge fan of the show. I often listen, wanting to be part of the conversation and so I'm driving around in Hollywood right now. thought I'd leave some thoughts on uh, Amadeus, the director's cut, and I'll try to be brief. Uh, first of all, I love this movie. This movie is, I, I long for the days of when you could take something so cinematically and aesthetically seriously while no one even tries to have an actual accent of wherever, uh, it, wh- wherever they're from, except for Grazie Signori. That's like the one thing. And it's like F. Murray Abraham is acting in a completely different movie from everybody else. So, I mean, Jeffrey Jones, come on. Anyway, um, the thing is, I love both versions of the movie to death. It's just that I consider them completely different experiences altogether. And, of course, with the director's cut, yeah, you have a couple of the opera segments that go on a little long, and there's some scenes like with Mozart uh, giving lessons that was cut out. And, you know, it's a director's cut, so there's going to be some stuff, you know, I mean, the theatrical cut definitely trims the fat. But, of course, the notorious scene of the director's cut, which turns it from PG to hard R, is, of course, the scene where Mozart's wife, uh, you know, attempts to pay off his debts with Salieri uh, and, you know, disrobes and does her thing. So it turns into a hard R. But the thing is, with this, uh, somebody's honking, of course, it's Hollywood, um, you know, the, the thing with this scene, it changes the character of Salieri completely. Whereas, you know, he, in the theatrical version, he's actually, he's not really the, he's not the evil guy. He's not the, the bad guy in the movie. And essentially Mozart is the, the really obnoxious guy. Salieri in the director's cut, because he seduces or essentially wants to, you know, exploit Stanzi for his own personal gain, thinking she won't go through with it, of course, but, you know, he essentially humiliates her uh, to try to pull one over on Mozart. It turns him into a much evil guy, which then when you see them meet up at the end of the movie with now having this scene and this encounter in context shows a much more sinister relationship between Salieri and Mozart and Salieri and Stanzi. Turns Salieri into a completely, you know, much more evil, maniacal character that has a much more vengeance with God after this, whereas... Before, it was really just a vengeance about music. It's a more whimsical story. Of course, there's dark themes and everything, but the director's cut just really changes the entire tone of the, of, of the, of the movie for me. So, I don't know. That's just my thoughts. Again, love them both, and I really love the show. Love to hear you guys uh, talk about all this. So, love to hear your thoughts about this. Take care, guys. So, Ryan, this is interesting because I think, you know, we did kind of kind of mention as much on the episode with this, but that, you know, if you're somebody who grew up or, you know, had seen the film a number of times on the theatrical cut, it paints Salieri a, a certain way that the director's cut then, you know, flips on its head with that right. scene. And that's definitely what we had here. So it's kind of interesting to hear that somebody, in fact, had that that experience. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, th- it just depends on which version you saw first. So, 
Uh, as I stated last week uh, or the last episode, uh, um, this was the first time I'd seen Amadeus. So I only knew it as the director's cut. So to me, removing that scene takes away some of the power Salieri has over um, Amadeus and Stanzi. And so it also yeah. kind of changes the dynamic. Like uh, the caller, uh, Brendan, um, was saying uh, at the end of the film where he is uh, yes, with Mozart so. when he passes away, um, you know, that becomes a completely different dynamic without that uh, scene in it. So it is weird that, you know, just with one brief sequence like that, uh, how much that can change a film. It's definitely an interesting topic. I can't say one is right and one is wrong. They're just to me different. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And I do think that's the biggest thing that we pick up is I, I do agree with what Brendan has to say. And the one thing that I do like about it is, yeah, the added tension at the end of the film, right? Because it just it brings so much more tension into the room when Stanzi comes home with the kids and Salieri's there and Mozart's dying, right? Right. Because of that experience that they had with one another. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, he doesn't go through with it. It shows that, you know, that the... Uh, his limitations of what he's willing to let himself do. You know, we've all been in situations like that, right? Where you get to a point and it's like, you know, you think you can go through with something or you feel all this spite and rage. And then at the end, you know, uh, good prevails and you realize, whoa, this is too much, you know, or reality sets in. You're like, Ugh. so um, though it does definitely change the dynamic of Salieri and, and uh, makes it super awkward. Uh, at the end, um, I do uh, don't think it changes it so much because I think it would be different if he went through with it. Because as we stated in the episode, Mozart went through with it. Like he straight up uh, banged Salieri's chick. So yeah, who knows? Um, I, I would. I'll leave you with this. This is kind of the deciding factor for me. Um, if you're going to call something a director's cut, to me that in, it, you know entails that this is or, or kind of defines that this is the director's vision that got changed somewhere along the way, sure. but it was his intent to have a little more power. Maybe it was cut just for the rating system. You know, maybe that was a content issue where it's yeah. like, dude, we get titties in here. Uh, we're going to lose 5 million bucks. Cause that's a bunch of kids that can't see this movie type of thing. You know, families won't come. So, uh, you know, maybe this was something that he wa uh, wanted and just had to cut for uh, con explicit content and, and a rating who knows. But um, I, I do appreciate the stance. I, I don't, I can't argue one way or another. Just, you know, for me, I was introduced one way to it. It sounds like uh the caller was introduced another way. So it's it's an interesting discussion. I'm not sure it has a right answer. Absolutely. And if you haven't, go ahead and go back and listen to our Amadeus episode from just two weeks back. And again, we would love to hear from you for anything movie-related, esoterica cinema-related, muffin-related, or, like I said, anything under the sun. That number, 818-483-6285. We'll see you on that esoterica cinema hotline and be back next week with more calls. Well, that was our listener mailbox, and let's go ahead and get into a description of this week's film. We have a movie to talk about today. <laughs> this is Chris Nolan's uh, student film, I guess. School of Hard Knocks. Might as well be. From <laughs> Might 90, as well be. From 1998 or 99, depending on where you find this thing. Uh, I've seen it listed as both. The following, or following, I guess. I always want to put the in front of it, but it's following by Chris Nolan. <laughs> no, that's the uh, that's the Kevin Bacon vehicle. Got it, that, got it. Uh, yep. That then TV following, show. Following it is by Chris Nolan from 98, 99. Google has this summarized <laughs> as 
A young writer living in London follows people in the hope of using their lives in his novels, but the hobby becomes an obsession, and he soon finds himself going further than intended. Hey, much like me and those strawberry candies, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's the entire description. Sorry, did you think I was going... Oh, wow. <laughs> I, uh, I expected yeah. there to be more. I mean, having seen the movie, I understand why there's not. But no, no, I was uh, normally, you know, you go on for a solid 45 seconds or I do. One of us does. But uh, no. Okay. Uh, you took out. a breather. I was like, oh, is this an edit point? Was there a. No, no, I was I was waiting for more. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> no, he went further than well, intended. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, and hey, look, dude, the, the movie itself is only what? A little over an hour long. It was an easy watch. Um, had a lot of Chris Nolan tropes in it that I'm sure we're going to get to and touch on. But uh, yeah, I don't think it needed much more of a. I mean, any more of a, a summary than that. And you're going to start giving plot points away. All right. Well, uh, Ryan, I also do have to express my disappointment at the lack of adherence to the format that we have worked so hard to cultivate. Oh, no. Many three seasons, because generally, generally, there is a little something that you say after you finished the description (laughs) that would key me into knowing that you're finished. But you didn't say that thing. So I was waiting. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Uh, (laughs) Jason. What did you think about this movie? <laughs> yes. Ah, I needed it. Yes. I needed that so much. Ryan, normally I would tell you right after we listen to the trailer for following, but there is no trailer or rather there is a trailer and we're just deciding not Fuck to use trailer. it because you know what? It's boring. <laughs> you boring following trailer. Okay. Get more exciting than come back to me. And while you're, you're at busted. it, work on the film as well. Same note. <laughs> we're on to you. Uh, Yeah, you know, I actually found this movie, it's funny because I could not help but constantly go back to last week's episode of Amadeus and think of our great, our great protagonist, Mr. Salieri, the self-described mediocrity of all mediocrities across the land. And that's exactly how I, that's exactly how I feel about following, right? I mean, it's a, it is a quintessential first film. Could I have done better with the same resources? No. Is it a competent film that is solidly constructed by a person who understands yep. cinema? Absolutely. 100%. Do I need to see it again? Agreed. Nope. Once was fine. Didn't hate it. Didn't love it. Respect it for what it is. Uh, it's very much, you know, like we've talked about so many times, right? Someone's uh, demo tapes of their band, <laughs> the you know first short film, right? Like these things where it's like, here is... Here is a work that shows promise uh, that, you know, and that's not without talent, but really it's just that the creator had to make this so that he could get it out of the way to make what would follow. Uh, Oh, by the way, dude, if anybody at, uh, if anybody listening wants to keep track of how many following jokes we're going to make, I I think the over under is probably nine and a half. (laughs) (laughs) So in the following scene, wink, wink. We have no shame. We have no shame. (laughs) Low hanging fruit is our favorite fruit. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so easy. It's right there. I don't even have to work at it. Like strawberry candies in a dish. Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's kind of what I thought about. It sounds like you were kind of of a similar mindset, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to to hang your hat on with this film. Obviously, sure, yeah. this is rife with things that we'll see future Chris Nolan doing. Um, 
it, you know, that the, the time jumps, the soundtrack and score, all these things are very, there were so many things I'm like, yep, that's a Chris Nolan movie. Uh, <laughs> I will also give credit where due. Like he shot this on 16 millimeter film, um, at a, yeah. a 98, 97, whatever on the weekends. Cause they all had day jobs at the time. So it took him over mm-hmm. a, a year to make this some bitch, if I'm not mistaken. So yes. You know, shooting shit on film. This was long before the days of YouTube tutorials and digital film where you could go grab a Blackmagic pocket cinema camera or a little mirrorless and go shoot your feature with some wireless loves. Like, no, I mean, the audio was clean. The dialogue was great. Um, Acting performances were good. You know, uh, I thought that it was just like you said, it's it's Play School's my first Chris Nolan movie. So, and the good part is that it's, a Chris Nolan movie, but the bad part is it's my first. So yeah, you know, more, more good things to come, but without this, you wouldn't have memento. You wouldn't have, you know, uh, inception or insomnia or some of these great films that, you know, have become a uh, part of our lexicon and in library that we, uh, have, have appreciated over the years. So yeah, credit where due. I, I did enjoy it for the building blocks that it was. I just can't watch this and get all chubbed up about it and be like, yeah, baby following <laughs> bitches. Give me that merch. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, totally agree with you there. Probably how some of our listeners feel about uh, this show, you know? <laughs> a lot of promise. These kids are going places. Let's let them work their, their way through it. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and get started here. <laughs> just need uh, just need you to tell me where uh, where should uh, where should go here. I mean, normally, Jason, I would say at the beginning, yeah, but... In the context of this film discussion, <laughs> really wherever you want, we're going to be bouncing around, so you can start right at the end. in the middle! Fuck you, I'll start with my grade rating. You want my grade? <laughs> we'll Chris Nolan this uh, whole episode. We'll chop it up and get the, uh, keep, the episode, keep the listeners on their toes. Absolutely. That definitely sounds like something you want to do. Edit, edit everything into pieces and mix and match them. Just shake Welcome. and bake all the pieces and see Ab- the way shake it comes and bake. out. Uh, yep, absolutely. Yep. Well, we'll still start at the beginning of the film anyways, which is not necessarily the beginning of the story. But when the film opens, we see a man. He's applying a latex glove in extreme close-up in the grainy black and white 16 millimeter stock that you were talking about. While repetitious and droning electronic music plays in the background, the hand is caressing a box of pictures and keepsakes and various ornaments of sorts. We're very quickly introduced to the protagonist who we can refer to, Will, Ryan, we'll go ahead and refer to them as Bill and Danny over the course of this episode. And just know that if we're, if we say Bill or Danny, it's the same person, which is the, which is the lead protagonist uh, played by a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Theobald, who, you know, you'd think that being in Chris Nolan's first movie might get you future work. It did not in his case. He had like. Five other credits. I think they were all very, very bit parts, like non-speaking roles in Chris Nolan films, probably just for posterity's sake, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And he's uh, he's actually sitting at a Dunkin' Donuts, starts narrating the events about how he began to shadow people. And I will go ahead and actually let the film set that up because it's actually a good explanation. So let's listen to this clip from following. The following is my explanation. Well, more of an account of what happened. I'd been on my own for a while and getting kind of lonely and bored. Nothing to do all day. 
And that's when I started shadowing. Shadowing? Shadowing, following. I started to follow people. Who? Anyone, first. Um, I mean, that was the whole point. Somebody at random. Somebody didn't know who I was. And then? And then nothing. Nothing? Nothing. I just see where they went, what they did. Go home afterwards. Why'd you do it? Um, see where they went. Anyone, I mean... How can I explain? You ever, um... Been to a football match, just let your, your eyes, um... Go over, drift across a crowd of people. And they slowly stop and fix on one person, and... All of a sudden, that person isn't part of the crowd anymore. They're, they become an individual. Just like that. Now, the other voice that you heard right there in the clip is of the detective. And it's kind of funny, Ryan, because this is sort of like the second week in a row where someone interviewing someone else about past events is the narrative device of the film. We saw that in Amadeus, where uh, the Salieri character is recounting his story to the priest. And in this one, it's actually kind of the same thing, where our protagonist, Bill, is uh, recounting his story to this detective and right up front, it shows a number of the techniques that Chris Nolan's going to utilize over the course of this film, right? We hear the yep. narration. We see the handheld camera work. We notice there are multiple edits, and they seem to be of kind of a strategic nature. So before we actually dive into the specifics, Ryan, let me just start by asking you, you know, what do you think of the the overall aesthetic of the film? Do you think all of those different elements, the mise-en-scene, if you will, right? Uh, do you think they work, and do you think they work especially for being a very no-budget $6,000 indie film? For starters, you're French. Impeccable. Impeccable French. Our listeners over, overseas are going to love you for that. So, uh, <laughs> I, this is a film that I start. I thought started very rough. It took me a minute for my eyes to adjust. Let me go okay. ahead and uh, start by saying that. Uh, okay, so our listeners know we record these things, you know, way in advance. We've given that disclaimer. Some of these episodes get recorded uh, at certain times, uh, out of order, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I only mention that because <laughs> I watched RRR literally right before watching this. So <laughs> the most um, eye-bleeding, over-the-top maximalist cinema in recent history, RRR, uh, the largest budget Indian film ever made, uh, juxtaposed with the lowest budget film I may have watched, uh, you know, in, in my adult years. So it took just a minute, like walking out from your house into the sun where it was like, ah, like my eyes are all squinty. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this sucks. Get it away. <laughs> but as it went on um, and, you know, the, the close ups of him fiddling around in the box and all of that and the uh, really tight shots of the detective and the questioning. And it just felt very student filmy to me, which is fine. He's working through it. He's figuring it out. But as we get into the film more and more and, and we start to get our bearings a little bit on who these characters are. He starts to shoot a little wider. I, I thought the film, I thought the film felt uh, way more natural as we got into it. And, and maybe that was yeah. me adjusting to the film style. Um, or maybe it was just straight up. The film got better, 
But uh, I, did, <laughs> I did enjoy this the more I got into it until the very end when I was like, huh, okay, cool. Like, it wasn't bad. I thought when I first watched it, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. And I, to the point where I was even wondering, how in the fuck did Criterion even want any part to do with this? Like, of all the Chris <laughs> Nolan films, like, why would they not just start with Memento and forget about this and say, well, now he's working through some things. Like, let him have that one. Thoughts? Yeah, well, well, I'm convinced that a large part of Criterion's selection process has to do with the licensing rights. You know? Okay. I mean, they're 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 popular among cinephiles, but like outside of like, anybody who's not a cinephile is not spending the money on a Criterion collection, right? Most people don't even buy physical media, period, anymore. You know, so all of that to say that I think that it's going to cost them a shitload of money to get Interstellar or Inception, whereas Following can be had for pennies on the dollar. So I think I think that and I think that's a large part of why they that's part of their business model is to focus in and try to license films um, that aren't super uh, popular. You know, they have a couple exceptions, you know, Silence of the Lambs, Do the Right Thing, Dr. Strangelove, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, I mean, many, many Criterion discs are films you haven't really heard of. And then, of course, you know, it is the first film of one of today's most popular filmmakers. And so that's right. always going to carry a certain level of novelty, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, real quick before we move on, um, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. But the detective, uh, aforementioned detective that we mentioned is Chris Nolan's uncle, John Nolan. No. Did not know that. And he's gone on to be in uh, most all of his other films. Oh, that's cool. As like a little bit part or extra. Nice. Nice. Yeah. For me, I guess, uh, you know, thinking about the film and you know what you mentioned about feeling very natural as it went forward. I think it borrowed a lot of filmmaking applications from like the French New Wave movement, you know, okay. which very much adhered to a lot of those similar principles, right? Like everything shot on, you know, 16 millimeter black and white because that was was available at the time. Everything is, you know, it's either outdoors or indoors. Either way, they're using a lot of natural lighting. Uh, they're using largely improvised scripts, which would obviously be a big derivation here because everything Chris Nolan does is super planned out. But, the, you know, the the sort of, I don't want to call it off-kilter editing, but the non-traditional editing, let's say. You know, that was also heavily used during that whole period. So, yeah, I think that the film owes – and it's funny because I don't really, I really don't think that it was like a, a knowing wink. I think it was just they, – they were, they were in similar circumstances, the French New Wave filmmakers and Chris Nolan, in that they were in large cities with no budgets, right? And they wanted right. to tell very human stories and – you know, they weren't trying to go sci-fi or, you know, overly dramatic. Just, you know, here's a slice of life for this type of person, right? And in this case, it's, you know, somebody who starts burgling in, you know, Cleo from 5 to 7. It's a metropolitan woman, right? In Band of Outsiders, it's these, you know, two older guys. Young, but, like, every, every, everything kind of has the same sort of, like, you know, either whether they're alone or they're in duos or trios, they're all kind of these outsider loners that exist in this world that is not in sync with like the rest of the world at large. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So supposedly Chris Nolan came up with this concept and you might know more about this uh, than I do, but um, uh, supposedly he came up with this concept after being burgled 
and robbed Correct. and was yeah. wondering uh, that, you know, that person went through all my shit. I wonder what he thought of my shit. And so, um, you know, it's all that kind of, so you're sitting at a coffee shop and you're looking out the window uh, and as people pass by, you start to observe, right? And it's like, I wonder what that person's deal is. And you could build a whole story in your head about this person based on the 20 seconds you saw them interact with somebody else or, or you know, interact with their pet or something like that or get into a cab, what they were carrying, what they were wearing. Um, so I kind of feel like a lot of this ki- this style of filmmaking is, I wonder what that person's deal is, you know? <laughs> and then kind of building a whole little short story around that and then, you know, fleshing these characters out and, and uh, going down that rabbit hole and chasing it through. So uh, this was no exception. Yeah. I thought it was done very well for what it was. Um, it didn't blow my mind. It wasn't groundbreaking. But uh, again, I, I liked... I like this movie more the more I got into it. Absolutely. Yeah. And our protagonist, as he's sitting here, you know, he has this rule never to follow the same person twice. And he ends up breaking that and following this one gentleman who he's approached by in a cafe. It's a man with a briefcase. And after being grilled awkwardly for a while, the man admits that he is actually a burglar. Uh, This burglar's name is Cobb. Uh, I don't know if you saw, Ryan, that uh, Cobb was played by a guy named Alex Haw, who pretty much like this is the only acting he really ever did. And since then, he actually is known for developing this like movement in architecture and art that sort of blends certain principles and utilizing like natural lighting and all of this. So like. I guess there's this sort of modality of thought that is applied to certain types of architecture that he kind of is like drove. It's very interesting. I'm not really an architecture guy, so I can't really speak to it that much. But uh, yeah, so he's like you a, don't say. <laughs> so he's like an artist <laughs> slash architect, uh, which again, just an interesting path for. Uh, I mean, because he did it, he did fine. You know, he looked good on on film, and he seemed comfortable and confident. So. So uh, just kind of interesting. I would argue he's the best part about this whole movie. Yeah, I agree. He was the glue that held this whole motherfucker together. The the blonde uh, woman, um, who I believe remains nameless. Uh, they actually the call her the blonde in the credits. <laughs> so when we say this blonde chick down the road, we're not being misogynistic. That's literally what they call her, the blonde. No. Hey, so that blonde. Get over here, blonde. Hey, we will... We've only got an hour to work with. We can't be like using things like names. <laughs> what do you think? I got two hours. <laughs> Fuck you with your names. <laughs> think I am Francis Ford Coppola over here. Um, she's the blonde. Yeah, I thought she did fine. I thought that uh, our main actor did fine. I thought everyone in the movie did fine. I thought the Cobb character did fantastic. I thought he was kind of the, the glue because he was so charismatic and on point with his delivery. Um, every time he came back on, he was kind of responsible for a lot of the exposition dumps because he was on both sides of this story. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he was very well used as a character uh, as well. It was almost like Chris Nolan knew what he had and kind of leaned into it. He's like, nah, this is our guy. Like, let's just make sure he's on in most of these scenes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And he's got this sort of, you know, ethos where he's like not in it for the money. You know, he's not burgling because he's trying to get rich. He wants to, quote, Take something away to show people what they had. And I think this is, you know, I think this is one of those things where it's like a criminal trying to be more principled than they are or deeper than they are. Right. Like it's I feel like it's the criminal equivalent of interpreting postmodern art like 
it, it, it's it's a it's a circle on a square. It's not a metaphor for anything. It's just laziness, right? Like you can intellectualize it all you want the same way that you can intellectualize burgling people. But I think at the end of the day, you just like doing bad shit. And that's really all it comes down to. So I'm glad you bring this up. And this is something I wasn't sure where to fit into the conversation as I kind of expected this conversation to last all of about 15 minutes. Because um, <laughs> I don't it's have a lot us, of It's us, dude. Here. Come but on. What, you really expected that. Right, right, right. <laughs> so one of the things I did take away from this film uh, is the themes that it kind of portrayed. And um, to me, this is a film about control or power. Sure. And having yeah. control or power over someone else. So... To me, voyeurism is a form of control or power as the all-seeing eye of sorts or the uh, you know, unspoken God archetype of just kind of not getting involved and, and, uh, but, but observing you know, from afar and, and having control over the situation. But then also burgling is control. And then as you get into it, the organized crime segment sure. and the manipulation is control um, as they're starting to pull the rug out and you see the different layers of what's actually going on. A control of Cobb over the blonde, over the uh, nameless character, the the burglar guy that were our main protagonist, and so on. So, uh, and then the cop at the end having ultimate control over his fate. So, I think it's this real turning point over who has control over who on in in what stage or what level. And everybody thinks that they're the ones, right? Like each one of these layers that we pile on, that character thinks they're in control, mm-hmm. and that they're you know nobody like they're the top tier. Um, and it starts with our main character being the voyeur. Sure. He feels like he can't get caught. Um, he gets a little arrogant and does get caught. But up until that point, he feels that he's in control. And then he's schooled on how to really be in control. And that's like you said, that's what we're at in this story. And then I'll toss it back to you, which is take it away. Then they realize what they've had. That's a form of power over somebody. And, and uh, you know, giving them something they did not know they needed or even to the point where... Um, he stuffs a pair of panties into a gentleman's pants that they're burgling um, because, and, and then our main character says, you know, why would you disrupt their relationship? Like we've already done what we came to do. And he says, uh, uh-uh, take it away, show them what they had again, uh, really kind of nailing down. Like they're not after the shit. Um, they're not even after the, the kink of it or, or the, the ru- adrenaline rush. It's the control or the power of it, feeling that they're in control over something. Or over somebody else. Yeah. Thoughts? I, I, I agree with you. I think I agree with you mostly. I think the only thing okay. the, I think the only thing for me is like to me, this is a little bit of that Joker psychology, right? And I think that a lot of times there's just these sort of chaos agents, right? And they get off on okay. just they just get off they get off on instituting and implementing this chaos because to your point it does give them that level of control but then they always try to sermonize and they try to make it seem like it's this oh well i'm trying to teach you a lesson or there's this element of altruism right and like i think it's that part of it for me that's kind of a cop-out right like i don't think that you're you know i i don't i don't think that you're in it to teach people a lesson you know if you if that was if that was really the point, you know, there are much healthier ways to go about it, right? Or there are less deceptive ways. Like, I think this is something where you get off on the control. All of that aspect I agree 100% on. But then I think that, you know, once they start to go to this, like, well, I'm trying to hold a mirror up to society. And it's like, no, you're not. You're just trying to use that to justify doing bad shit. <laughs> that's all that is. Right, right, right. Well, and then t- you're absolutely right. Because so that's where we're at in this film currently. Is the the altruistic, you know, sermonizing of 
uh, we're trying to teach people a lesson. But the camera does zoom out several times after this to show that um, it actually is a... Uh, uh, th- there are other motives yeah. to the plot, mm-hmm. uh, what they're trying to get, you know. So, you know, the, the burglar guy, uh, our protagonist, the original uh, voyeur author guy, um, you know, thinks... Uh, that's what he's in it for. But then, you know, we find out that he's actually being controlled and manipulated. Who's actually being controlled and manipulated by someone else. Who's, you know, be actually being controlled and manipulated <laughs> by someone else. And, and so, so on. on and so on and so on. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, excuse me. Yeah. I, uh, couldn't help but notice that tune that you're whistling there. What is that? Oh, it's nothing, really. It's just a little ditty I heard on the radio this morning. Oh, okay, no, it's just because, uh, it actually sounds a lot like this song this fella was whistling the other day when he was following me around town. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. You wouldn't happen to know anything about that, would you? Well, um... No, I mean, yeah, see, uh, it couldn't have been me because I... Oh, 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 jeez. Quit following people around, jerk. It's creepy. Oh, it's time to face the facts, Rory. You're just no good at stalking. Imagine me, 30 years old and no good at stalking. Thank goodness Mudder can't see me now. (sighs) What's a putz like me supposed to even do with himself? Due to popular demand, the makers of Encyclopedia Britannica are pleased to introduce a brand new collection catering to the needs of incels everywhere, the Stalker's Handbook. Featuring a stunning hardbound leather presentation across 13 volumes, the Stalker's Handbook allows you to express the intensity of your desires without ever having to open your mouth. We'll learn about such pioneers in the field as Michael Myers as we delve into the impact that modern horror has had on the art of stalking. We'll also consider abstract challenges to long-held stalking principles, such as the John Hinckley paradox, while learning about exciting new techniques like the Weinstein maneuver. The Stalker's Handbook. Buy today and pay across 47 easy weekly installments. Operators are standing by. And now back to the show. And we are introduced to the blonde there, there very shortly. Daniel goes to the bar and the blonde, by the way, played by Lucy Russell, who is actually the one actor or actress in this case who would go on to get future work. So, yay. Good job, Lucy Russell. She crushed. Good honor. Granted, it was. Yeah, she was good. Now, granted, you know, that work was largely, you know, it wasn't major studio films. She's not like a huge actress or anything like that. But it seems like she was able to carve a niche for herself and at least get some paid work. So good on you, Lucy. So we have Daniel go to the bar. He does meet the blonde. She mentions that this club owner who's supposed to be this badass guy is her BF. And regardless, she still goes home with Danny. They have a couple drinks. They talk. And, you know, once he kind of makes a move, she abruptly leaves. And I think that this is sort of where the Been film there, introduces. Buddy. Been there, haven't we all? And I think this is where the film sort of establishes itself as kind of a traditional noir, or brings in those traditional noir elements, right? Like you've got like the, uh, 
what do they what do they call her? Like the the seductive. It's not the damsel in distress. It's like the seductive one from like the the Humphrey Bogart movies and stuff. Like a it's femme like a fatale of sorts. Yeah, that's the one. Thank you, femme fatale. So we've introduced her as the femme fatale. Did you want to uh, did you want to judge that up with a shit accent? Uh, <laughs> that if the femme fatale. <laughs> <laughs> she is introduced as the Fimfita. 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 Where does she get her hair done? At the Fital Sassoon. <laughs> Let's just keep doing this longer and so everybody turns it off if anybody is still listening after those. That's like that's like some oh. like want to hear the most annoying sound in the world shit right there. Fimfita. Fimfita. And, uh, and then also, you know, very shortly after that is where the film introduces the other sort of defining characteristic, which is its non-traditional narrative. Buddy, look, this movie's only an hour long. It's all very shortly after that. <laughs> <laughs> In the following scene. <laughs> By the way, we've done that a lot less than we, than we said we would at the top of the episode. So, you better ramp but, it up. But uh, no, they, just within terms of this is where the sort of the film introduces its non-traditional editing structure, because right now it hasn't right. been that all over the place. And then this is all of a sudden where it's like, oh, OK, we're going way far into the future or possibly into the past here. But we see that now our protagonist, Danny, is in a suit and he's got a swollen eye and he's on the phone. And so obviously a lot of time has passed because last time we left him, he was still in his like. You know, uh, Robert Pattinson, Kurt Cobain phase in terms of his look. And <laughs> he uh, we cut back to him for day one with uh, with said outfit. And he uh, we see him and Cobb go to Danny's house and or his apartment anyways. And Cobb is actually pissed. He's like, who is this poor guy's house? Let's get the hell out of here. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Ryan, did you let me ask you, because I wasn't I wasn't 100 percent. Did Cobb know that was his house or did he not? I didn't know yes. that was like. So we find out later because he he when he's in bed with the blonde, he says uh, that poor sack uh, even put a key under the doormat. Like I told him, you know, all this shit. And he's right, like, he probably right, even right. he probably even bought the fucking doormat so he could have something to put a key <laughs> under because that guy had nothing. Also, did you notice the Batman sticker on the door? I, I thought did. that was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, after that, we then cut back to Danny. He's in the suit, but his eye is okay, and he's watching the club guy. And shortly after that, he's in the apartment with the blonde. And, you know, we then see him in a suit. And then we see him in a suit. He's talking to the – he's talking to – again, it feels weird to just keep calling her the blonde, but that's what she's called. So he's talking to the blonde. That's fine. And <laughs> There's and no other woman in of, this. So yeah. you could just say she or her and we get it. Those are her pronouns and that's her name as well. <laughs> and, you know, there she's kind of sort of like trying to pump up on the audience's behalf. The club owner is this big badass antagonist. She's talking about him like smashing fingers and skulls and all that stuff because people owe money, which we're going to see later as well and at this point it's where bar uh or bill rather he's walking through the bar and he finds the safe they introduce the safe we now know that it's in this club here and that's when it jumps cuts back to the past and we see bill and cobb in the restaurant and the woman so we didn't mention this but there's uh, earlier on when they were burgling the one house you know, when they're in the middle of it, like two people walk in, right? Ostensibly the people that live there. And they're like, what right. are you doing in our house? And they're like, oh, you know, we're just here for the viewing, but uh, it doesn't look like it's uh, for us. Uh, thanks later. And they're like, there's no viewing. What are you talking about? They're like, yeah, yeah, great place. Lovely. We'll make an offer later. And they bail. And 
So when this scene happens, the girl comes in, but it's with a different guy. And so, you know, into Bill, the restaurant or the bar. Yeah, into the restaurant. Yeah. yeah. And Bill starts freaking out. And Cobb's like, no, 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 that's a different guy. Don't worry. Like that time where she walked in on us, like she was actually like getting ready to cheat on her boyfriend with this other dude. So like she's never going to bring that up. Right. Because it would potentially expose that. And, right. Bill, you know, Bill is still like, no, 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 I don't know. I don't know. And he's like, look. I'm telling you this is the case, but if it's really going to bother you that much, you should really consider changing your appearance. And it's after this that he changes his appearance. And then some of these jump cuts kind of start to justify themselves. So the one thing that I will tell you, Ryan, is I don't know. I think we're about halfway through the film or so at this point. Obviously a short film. <laughs> right. And uh, and up until now, like a lot of the jump cuts – I wasn't certain that they were prepared to justify themselves. They felt a little loose and a little like, oh, we're just kind of doing this for the sake of doing it, a little Tarantino-y, et cetera. And this is the late 90s when people started doing this, you know, messing with chronologies five years after Pulp Fiction. So I was kind of worried that maybe it was just going to be something that he did to make it a bit of a unique or different viewing experience. However, as the film goes on, you start to see where the cuts justify themselves. And there are certain times where not only did it sort of, uh, you know, work in and of itself, but where it would maybe even help speed up the pace, right? Because to be told in a traditional structure and a traditional format, we would kind of have to give you certain details of the story to satisfy the logistics where maybe those aren't important to the story itself. But with jumping around, we can just sort of bypass a lot of that stuff and really just keep it right. to the meat, you know, and get rid of a lot of that extraneous fat. There's one scene in particular uh, that I could think of to your point where he's literally on the ground spitting rubber gloves out of his mouth where we see what, you know, he's got the shit kicked out of him or something like that. Mm -hmm. It allows you to jump right into the middle of the action and then we'll yeah. go back and like, uh, you know, so that helps the pacing because it's like, we'll explain it later. We'll show you how we get there um, because we can exposition dump after the action, but let's start with the action. And then we'll let that play out. And then when we need to go explain it, we'll jump back in time to another point of action, jump right into the middle of something happening, get into the middle of a scene uh, like the guy getting killed on the rug or, you know, whatever. And um, and then we'll let that scene play out. And then as it plays out, we'll get to the exposition, which will explain and justify either a previous or further scene down the road. Um, but, you know, allowing, you know, like you said, jumping around like that allows you to cut right into the middle of an action beat. So the Absolutely. second that your exposition starts starts to fizzle out, boom, you're, you know, uh, 20 days in the future or a week in the past. But now somebody's getting killed or getting their fingers smashed in or getting the shit kicked out of them or you're getting, you know, having sex or being robbed or whatever it is. Um, but you're something's happening so that it doesn't have to play linearly, because oftentimes in a linear situation, um, you have these big lulls, you know, and you're checking your phone or whatever. I felt like. Chris Nolan kept it on task so that the second something would start to fizzle out, boom, you're being thrust. And it kind of forces you to pay attention, right? Because like with me, I was pretty engaged for most of the film. Um, it didn't always work, but usually I'm sitting there trying to piece together like, okay, when was this? He's a, He's got a beard or he doesn't have a beard or he's wearing this or whatever. So I'm trying to like fit in the timeline of, you know, that's the game, right? With movies like this, yeah. whether it's like... Mm -hmm. Old Boy or Inception or Memento or any of these, you know, it's just kind of like, when did this happen? Which which version of this character is this? You know, so I thought it I thought it worked pretty well, especially for his first film. Like, 
That's a, that's not an easy thing I would imagine to pull off, you know? Correct. No, I agree. And taking it a step further, uh, as we mentioned, this was shot on the weekends because these people all had day jobs. So just like when you're shooting these things sequentially over like a six week period or four week period or whatever for a film this size, um, I could imagine it would be a lot easier for consistency or when this happened or when that happened or whatever. And then we'll put this there, you know, and, and kind of lay it all out. But to keep track of all these different time jumps and time, you know, and timelines, of when we're going to reveal this to the audience and he's got to maintain this level of beard and hairstyle over the course of an entire year, like, and keep that consistently. Uh, I, I could imagine, I mean, hats off. Like that's gotta be pretty difficult. Even if you shot it sequentially and you edit it out of order, that's still gotta be tough. Totally, man. I know you had even mentioned that with your film toast, like, you know, you playing a, or acting in your film, uh, it's like, man, I can't get a haircut or I have to, you know, go get a haircut <laughs> because like, uh, you know, so much time has passed and I've got to do these pickup shots, you know, and my hair was like this. So uh, it all has to be very specific. You don't think about that shit when you watch a movie like this, but it's like, man, they might've shot these two scenes with, you know, eight months apart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it's shortly thereafter as well that we kind of learn the crux of the film, you know, and that's that, you know, largely... This is Cobb sort of setting up Bill, and he's actually in cahoots with the blonde, right? So we get that scene where the two of them are in bed, and Cobb's trying to convince Bill, I think, to, like, sell half of stolen goods as, like, a running thing and, and give him half or something like that, and he'll help him get some some stolen goods. I wasn't 100% sure about that, but regardless, it, it, it's not that important because what ends up happening is that uh, – the blonde is actually going to convince uh, Bill slash Danny to work with her. Now, this is also sort of where we start to jump around and see that Bill does ultimately successfully rob the safe. Whether or not he gets away with it remains to be seen. But it cuts to Bill and he's inside the club. The safe is open and he's taping money around his body, right, that he's going to put his clothes over and, you know, walk out of the club. And, you know, this guard walks in, sees it, you know, goes to make a move, and Bill has a hammer that he's been taking with him, and he bludgeons the guard to death. And I think this is, again, Brian, to your point earlier, uh, an example of the effective quickening of pace, you know, and uh, just sort of some misdirection, setting up reveals by giving you information up front that makes it seem one way. And then you go back and it's like, ah, but really, you know, here's this little wrinkle. And so he does that. He does that pretty well. Uh, it's not a ton of balls to juggle in the air. Like there's not like a ton of, it's not twist after twist after twist. And he has to like resolve like a ton of things, but you know, he set himself up for success. He, he, he didn't bite off more than he could chew, but he made sure uh, to bite off enough to keep himself fed and to keep us fed as an audience. So it was a nice balance in that respect. And, you know, the blonde convinces Danny to steal the money, uh, not necessarily by just, you know, saying that they could, you know, live rich and run off together and all that sort of stuff that happens. But also by claiming that she had very sensitive photos taken of her and that these photos are sealed in an envelope in the safe as well. And so by going and knocking off the safe, he can take the photos, rescue those so they don't get shown, as well as take the money. They can split it and, you know, right off into the sunset as they're going to do. Now, that's not really what ends up happening, obviously, because we saw that, uh, A, they're in cahoots, uh, the blonde and 
Cobb. Uh, we saw that, you know, uh, he got almost beaten up by the guard, but then was able to turn that around. Uh, but he does actually get his ass beaten in the next scene by Cobb. So he's going to meet him on the roof and Cobb ends up beating the crap out of him. Ryan, I, I wanted to ask you, do you think was did Cobb beat him up to steal his money or because which we didn't mention because Danny ended up sleeping with the blonde? Or do you think that it was like retribution for both? What exactly do you think was the impetus for him like going off on him like that? <sighs> I took it as, uh, again, th- this movie is a theme of, of layers of control. And I thought that at this point, um, Danny was kind of, he needed to be reined back in. Like he was feeling very confident and out doing his own thing. Ultimately, mm-hmm. Cobb had uh, his own plan for Danny that comes to see its way through to the very end. Um, they end up winning on this one. But, uh, yeah, I think that it was to, you know, because, you know, if you if you don't have that scene right, then Danny, then this movie just plays out linearly the way that we're describing. And this plot line sees its way to the end. Danny gets the money. He's got the photos, this and that. But you need to upset that and kind of set Danny back a little bit so that then he goes down the other path, which ultimately leads him to his own demise of sorts. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree with that. So it was a bit and, of a course correction kind of, for me. Like Cobb needed a, to do you know, use his power over this situation to course correct Danny to get him to go down this other path at this fork in the road um, so that he, you know, would ultimately serve Cobb's purpose, which wasn't the money at all. Correct. Yeah, it gets him to, you know, create that separation. Like, hey, like me and you aren't friends anymore. And right, here's, right. You know, by doing this, I'm going to make you respond this way, which is going to set you down a path that I need you to go through because I'm setting you up to take the fall for it. It puts him on his back foot a little bit, you know? It makes him act defensively instead yeah. of offensively, which is at this point in the plot line where, you know, he's at in his career is he's acting offensively. He feels like he's got a pretty good handle on his skill set. Um, based on what he's learned from Cobb and practiced. And now he's going to apply that to help the blonde uh, achieve her needs. He's like, I'll use my superpowers for good, basically, more or less, to help her see her thing through, get those pictures back, get a little money in the process. And then we'll make this, you know, it's the trademark, this is my last job, you know, and then I'm out, I'm done after this. Yeah, right. And uh, and then, you know, that's never the case. That's kind of the trope. Um, and then this is the... Uh, the all is lost moment, you know, uh, that you kind of get as you turn the corner into act three. So, um, yeah. I, yeah, definitely. And and again, I think that all of these sort of plot points that we're hitting are very reminiscent of noir, you know, absolutely. the traditional right. noir storytelling and all of those beats and plot points, et cetera, and character tropes and all of that. So uh, just, you know, making sure to hit those along the way as well. Now, after this... It, this is kind of when the big reveal comes up, actually, and it's, you know, pretty much the the end of the film. Uh, and along the way, it's basically been a matter of, OK, we understand that Bill is being set up by the blonde and Cobb. They're in cahoots. Bill doesn't know it. Bill thinks that he and the blonde are getting themselves set up to go have, you know, a future together and they're going to ride off into the sunset. And he's just getting played the whole time. Now, there's still this other element, you know, twist on twist, right? Uh, That ends up being the case with Cobb when all is said and done. So through the interview with the cop, because, you know, coming back here at the end, uh, 
going back to the fact that we had this interview set up, which really I don't really think we jump back to the interview during the middle of the film. I think it's just bookending it at the beginning and end, if I yeah. remember correctly. Yeah, it's like an interrogation, yeah, so, more or less. Yeah. So here at the end, this is where it's revealed that Cobb was, in fact, setting Danny up the entire time. And really, you know, it turns out that whereas Danny thought that he was being trained by Cobb so that he could, you know, learn the, his ways and, you know, do what he does and follow in his footsteps and they have a friendship, et cetera, et cetera. We find out that Cobb's been manipulating him the entire time and that he was really training him to be exactly like him so that all of the clues would lead to Danny, right? right? If he needed Cobb a makes these moves, exactly. Cobb makes these moves, but he they're the exact same moves that Danny's making because he taught them to him. Ergo, I can pin my stuff on Danny and it's going to look like he did it and not me, right? Yep. So that's kind of like what he was up to the entire time. However, it's then also revealed that on top of that, there's been a murder. And we find out very quickly that the blonde was in fact murdered and that this as well was all part of Cobb's plan to take all of the money, I assume, right? Is that kind of what it what what the whole thing I was? I guess, yeah. That was the motivations for Cobb were kind of yeah. that's where I got lost a little bit. Because at this point we're like we're doing time jumps and we're zooming in and zooming out, you know, between these different characters and and layers of power and control and manipulation. Um, so at a certain point I did get a little tripped up. I will say Chris Nolan did an excellent job. You're absolutely right. He didn't bite off more than he could chew. Um, but there, I, I did get a little confused uh, here and there, which I think is normal. And sometimes, you know, movies like sure. this warrant a rewatch and, and are appreciated absolutely. more on the second way ride through because you realize you were given these nuggets and you just weren't picking up on it because you did. I'll even take it a step further and ask you, um, in the beginning of the film, were we even told that that was an interrogation by a police officer or if, am I correct in uh, remembering that it almost starts off like he's telling a story to somebody or it, like you said, it's an interview of sorts and it could be anything from media, press, police, a friend, um, or anything. I think that the police portion of it was left very obscured in the front part of the film. And then in the back part of the film, it's revealed he's actually being interrogated. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I think that you could, I think that you could assume that he's being interviewed if not interrogated by someone, okay. but that maybe it's not necessarily a hundred percent clear because the, the, he kind of asks him clarifying questions about like shadowing people. Right. You know? It right. was actually, I mean, that was the clip that we actually heard at the top of the episode. Right. And so you know, you you hear the cop kind of asking clarifying questions like, oh, so then, you know, did you did you follow women? And he's like, no, I didn't follow women. Correct. It wasn't sexual. It was just a thing I did. So you kind of like I said, you you know he's being interviewed, if not necessarily interrogated. Well so to me, I thought it was say. almost like it was a um, I took that when I first started watching the film, I thought it was like a Tony Soprano talking to his therapist situation where oh, okay. he was like more or less trying to work through some things. Like I have this problem. Oh, let's hear about it. Well, I like to follow yeah. people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to tell you about it. And okay. we're going to go down this story. The movie's called following. I thought it was about voyeurism that maybe goes wrong or he follows the wrong person. 
um, you know, a criminal that, and he gets wrapped up in this shit, you know, or, or whatever. Sure. But then when we get to the end, we find out that he's actually on the hook for some shit and he was brought in and he's trying to give his alibi more or less. But I didn't really take it as that until the, the end. And I thought that was kind of a, another level that where I got the rug kind of pulled out from under me. I was like, Oh shit, you're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I had that to a degree because I assumed I didn't necessarily assume that he was being interrogated as a primary suspect. Okay. I thought it was something where he was maybe being interrogated for information, right? Like cop cop pulled off this thing and then he went missing and you know, you were, seen with him at this place and blah, blah, blah. Or eyewitnesses say you were with him. Can you tell us what's going on? Like, I didn't realize that they were there to specifically interrogate and accuse him of murder. Cause I could be know? way wrong on this, but I don't remember anything in the opening of the film that was very descriptive, uh, descriptive of like a police station or, you know, um, it, it was, t- I, I believe if I remember it was shot very tight, on both their faces, it was. And um, no, I think the I think the uh, therapist or psychologist was a fair assumption because it's like a folder that they're in right, and they're writing. Right. So it's going to be one of the two. Like depending on what you're kind of more familiar with or what's on your mind, you're either going to interpret that as be either being like a psychological matter or a, a police procedure, right? Matter, right. Like it could equally be both. So maybe that's a. So I think it's fair to a assume bit of either. a uh, cinematic Rorschach test of like. Do you see a cop or do you yeah, see right? a therapist? It's like, no, I see a therapist. It's like, well, that's telling. Let's talk about that. <laughs> or I see a cop. Oh, that's telling. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, right. I feel like either is just as loaded as the other. Right, right, right. So you saw a cop. I saw a therapist. I think that's very telling about yours and I's personalities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, man. Awesome. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, no. So, I mean, you know, that's pretty much like the that was the only thing that I didn't realize. I think that the idea is that he took the money from Daniel when he like beat the crap out of him, basically. And like like I think he was probably it could be a thing where maybe he was up there waiting for the blonde and then Cobb shows up. And he is like, oh, what are you doing here? I thought uh, it was going to be the blonde. And he's like, it's me, bitch. And then he beats the crap out of him and takes the money got that it, he was going to split it. with the blonde. And then bails away, right? Like, I could definitely see that Who's using the case. who? Right. And then, yeah. And then, he, and then he goes back to the blonde and he's like, hey, good news. I got our money. And she's like, great. And he's like, bad news is I'm here to kill you. The money's all mine. <laughs> Bam, bitch. And he's been using and everybody leaves, all along. Right. right. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's again... You know, touching on those noir and neo-noir tropes, right? The bad guy's always one step ahead. And right. just when you think you've got it figured out, he's got one more trick up his The sleeve, Kaiser right? Sose like, moment. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That where it turns out that uh he was he was one step ahead of everyone the entire time, even more than we initially thought, right? Yeah, I mean the prequel to this film could very easily be Cobb having worked for that gangster guy or having been wronged by him or having an interaction with him. And he's like, I'm going to get him. And so he uses the uh, ex-girlfriend to get to him and then sets her up by saying, we're going to get this Patsy to take the fall. And then, you know, works its way backwards. You know, if you were to play this out linearly totally. until he gets the best of everybody in a very Danny Ocean kind of way, um, but with more death. <laughs> Dude, you know what we need is we need a $150 million Warner Brothers produced prequel to following. Because that's all the rage these days. I don't think we do. 
<laughs> How about that? <laughs> It'll be a big grand musical. It'll be just like all over the place. Yeah. Bad shit crazy, as we like to say. <laughs> Banana pants crazy. The leading. We'll call it the leading. The leading and the following. <laughs> the coming and the going. And then, you know, yeah. And then as far as, you know, the narrative wrapping itself up, we do see that a lot of the actions and plants that Cobb made over the course of the movie were all designed to lead up to this moment where the cops would be investigating him. And so, you know, there were, and, and I will admit, for example, like I didn't quite understand the earring, right? Like I know the earring was a plant, but like, did you know what, like why that pinned the murder on him? Is it cause she, is it because it was in his house? Yeah. Did he plant the earring in his house? Yeah, they house? found the earring uh, so they were in like, his oh. place. And, um, Oh, okay. and she was wearing was like the another other house one. that they were burgling. So got it. Yeah. So and then the and then the pa- and then he also like made sure to take her panties and put them in like the keepsake box. So yeah. So that makes sense. Then all of this was designed so that they would find belongings that were actually on the victim's person, right? Right. In, in the right. Form of this earring and panties, etc. Just to really lay out the evidence. Yeah, because Cobb made it seem so casual. Like, isn't this fun? And then in the end, it's like, (laughs) you have all this shit in your fucking house, dipshit. (laughs) It's like red flag (laughs) after red flag. Like, how do you have one earring and a pair of panties? You know? Yeah. I don't know. Dude, I feel like I feel like that's how like the uh, the trap house starts, right? Or the safe house, rather. Uh, it's like, hey, like let me just, you know, cops are on me. Let me just keep this eight ball over here. <laughs> oh, that's fine. You know, just go ahead and stash it over there, right? And then like a couple days later, like, oh man, they're on to me. I've got this ounce. Can I just like bury it in your floorboards? Like, <laughs> I'll give you the profits of half. And you're like, oh, okay. And the next thing you know, you just got people coming in and, your, in and out of your house all day long. Some training you're trying to keep shit. like your wife and your kid from finding out, and you know. It's a slippery slope. Breaking Bad taught us this. Uh, speaking of which, Jason, I'm, I've got some uh, strawberry candies I need you to hold on to. It's just for the weekend. <laughs> it's not for long, dude. I'll take them back. Um, in the meantime, help yourself to as many as you want. But uh, I, I just, I'm going to have a package sent to you. Just sign for it. It'll be fine. Excellent. To all the listeners, don't tell Ryan I'm going to cob him. I'm going to make the candy business my own, but I'm going to make it seem like I'm helping him out along the way. <laughs> wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Uh, listeners, don't tell <laughs> Jason. I don't give a shit about this podcast. I'm just using it as an alibi to show that we're friends so nobody assumes that I'm setting him up on the plant of strawberry candy. <laughs> everybody listening no i'm just kidding (laughs) jason can't hear me when i'm talking like this (laughs) when you hear this we're talking into a tin can with a string connected to the microphone that only you can hear this is my inner monologue (laughs) (laughs) we're such idiots and then Ryan, after that, Cobb disappears into the crowded streets of London, never to be seen again. Much like a a man who learns he has cancer walking into the ocean, right? Just going off into a crowded sea, never to return. Like the ghosts in very, a field of dreams. It's very poetic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. That's following. That's all 70 minutes of following. Which also uh, is filled with corn cobs. Lots of cobs going around. Uh, disappearing in the cob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. Quick, 
Morty, Morty, we've got to leave. Everything's on a cob. We can't live here. Let's leave now. <laughs> We're in the cob universe. I still love that. I still love that that the like the worst thing in the universe was things being on a cob. It was like <laughs> idyllic and perfect, but it's like no, no, everything's on a cob. Quick, let's go. <laughs> Watch Rick and Morty if you don't know what we're talking about, people. Well, they could they should call this movie Blonde on a Cob. Why? They uh, it doesn't matter. Moving on. <laughs> Blonde on a cob. Jesus. Uh well, Ryan, we've still got a couple uh, housekeeping items to go over here, not the least of which is three adjectives. Why don't you go ahead and give us yours, bud? All right. So my first one is textbook. This is textbook Chris Nolan. Uh, right down to what the one thing we didn't talk about, which is the ticking clock score. Did you pick up on that? Right out of Dunkirk slash Inception slash Memento slash The Dark Knight. <laughs> it opens with apparently so everything he's ever done apparently uh, dude the movie opens this movie opens with as he's fiddling around that box that you talked about in our opening sequence tick 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 I was like dude this is like the opening to Dark Knight when they're doing the bank heist and I'm like wait a minute this is the entire <laughs> score to Dunkirk wait a minute <laughs> I had my own uh, personal everything on a cob moment so uh, yeah this is very textbook not in a bad way by the way um, which leads me to my next one which is promising you know this Chris Nolan kid's going somewhere we've said it before we'll say it again I think this kid's got a lot of promise can't wait to see what he's made next oh wait everything awesome so uh, you know <laughs> that leads me to my next one which is no notes which is as literal as can be I'm looking at a very blank page of notes I don't really have a lot to say about this film um, is it the, the best version of this? No. Is it promising? Yeah. I thought they did a lot very well in the days before YouTube tutorials. I don't even, I couldn't even find any evidence that Chris Nolan went to film school. I think he got his degree in English literature. So I think he's more of a writer than anything yeah, else. He did not actually. Right. No, he taught himself, uh, taught himself everything. He knows Fucking rock star. My early work does not look like this. Right? I promise you that. So, <laughs> and he did like everything. It was like him and Emma Thompson and a couple other people. So, or not Emma Thompson, Emma, what's her nuts? It was Emma Thomas, which, yes. by the way, if you didn't know, uh, Emma Thomas is now called Emma Nolan. Oh, did she swap out? Yep. Dig it. Yep. 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 She produced the film. They got hitched afterwards, and then Nolan made a bunch of money, and she turned out to bet on the right horse. Well, I, I knew they were hitched. I just didn't know she took his last name. I thought she was still uh, Emma Thomas, but uh, regardless. Either way... Um yeah, I believe she is still Emma Thomas. They have their production company, Syncope Inc. And, um, oh, Emma Thomas Nolan. Okay, so we're both right. Hey, we're both right. That never happens. Hey, Love that. Yep. What a test of a good marriage, right? Like, hey, we're going to go make this feature film over the course of the year and spend all our money on, uh, uh, you know, film stock and editing. <laughs> you can make it through that. Right? That's how you know. If you can if you can survive making a film together, you can survive anything. You don't deserve me at my dark night if you can't handle me at my following. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said that. Absolutely. Let me go ahead and give you my three adjectives here. My first one is clever because I thought it was pretty ingenious the way that they pulled off a lot of the edits. Like I said, I thought they were going to be kind of superfluous and unmotivated to start off, but they ended up being really well justified, and I like the way that they pulled everything off. Efficient. You know, this is lean filmmaking at its best, six thousand dollars. You know that that won't even uh, get you, you know, three months of rent anymore. So uh, to make a whole entire ass feature film on that, uh, back in the nineties, especially too, when they had to buy film stock, I mean, right. I'm sure 
five of that six was just film stuff. Dude, they didn't even have you know? nonlinear editing systems back then. You had to do this on like an Avid or, uh, you know, Steambeck or something like that. Like, I, I wouldn't even know how to begin to make a movie in 98. So good on them. Yeah. And then manageable, which is to say that they took a manageable bite, right? We talked, I mentioned it before. Uh, didn't bite off more than they can chew. They made sure that they were going to tell a pretty, you know, complex story or not really a complex story. They were going to utilize complex devices to tell us a rather simple story. And I think that's why this film succeeds. Sure. You know, they knew this was their first film. They knew they had everything going against them. Just getting it done and completed is a challenge in and of itself, let alone making it any good along the way. So clever, efficient and manageable for me, Ryan, that's going to result in a star rating of three and a half out of five. I'm giving them a little bit of extra love for being a first film made for absolutely no money. Right. And in terms of the uh, viewing experience, maybe a little bit closer to three, but a little bit of extra love taking into account everything else that factored in. Three and a half out of five stars. What do you have for a grade rating, Ryan? Giving them a C plus. Kind of in that same vein. I thought, uh, if nothing else, I give them a lot of credit, too, for getting in and getting out. They didn't overstay their welcome. They knew what they had. Um, so... You know, it was brief. It was to the point. It was succinct. It was very well done. Very well shot. Did what didn't blow my mind, but uh, really, really good starter film. Absolutely. And that wraps up our discussion for following. Now, before we continue to the end of the show nonsense that I like to say, uh, we do have a new sort of feature that we've been talking to you guys about, and that's our listener mailbox, the Esoterica Cinema Hotline, right? And we really want you guys to call in. And we'd love to hear what you have to say about anything and everything under the sun. But we thought it might be fun to sort of give you some specific prompts and have you call in. So uh, to anybody listening, uh, we're going to introduce a new feature at the end of the show now called Question of the Day. I know, clever, right? We uh, paid a copywriter a lot of money to come up with that one. May come up with a more clever title for it down the road. But for now, Question of the Day. And we're going to pose a question to you guys listening that pertains to the episode we just discussed. And we want you to call in. The number for the hotline, by the way, I'll give it to you again at the end, is 818-483-6285. You call that, you'll hear my voice, you'll leave a message, we will edit that, and we will get you on future episodes. So for today's question, with following famously made for $6,000, we want to know, what is your favorite low-budget film? And for the purposes of this question, we are setting a threshold of $1 million. So any film made for a $1 million or less, what is your favorite? Call us at Esoterica Cinema on the hotline. Let us know. We'll get you on the air. 818-483-6285. You listening, call and let me know what is your favorite low-budget film. Hopefully we get some fun responses there, Ryan. And as far as where you can hit us up, now here's the thing. As far as the question of the day, too, you don't have to strictly call in. We would love for you to call in. We love hearing your guys' beautiful voices and sharing them with the world. But we are able to be reached a number of different places. First one we have is social medias, right? So primarily Twitter and Instagram, at Esoterica Cinema. And then we also have our website, EsotericaCinema.com, where you can go on and actually... 
There's a contact us button at the bottom left or the bottom right, but either way at the bottom of your screen, and that'll link directly to us. And then, of course, we do have our Gmail account, esotericacinema at gmail.com, and you can write in and let us know what do you think about anything that we've talked about, or you can answer our question of the day, what is your favorite low-budget film made for less than a million dollars? So we'd love to hear from you. Please do check us out. And as far as the website is concerned, we made a little bit of a facelift, so you can listen to all of the episodes on our dedicated web player, which we have a link to there. You can listen to the last three episodes right there on the site towards the top of the page. And then you can also access our master list. It's right there on the website. You can scan through all three pages without having to download it, though you can still download it as a PDF if you like. And of course, the master list is where we pull all of our films from at the end of the episode, including the film that we're going to pull right now. Yes! One of my favorite parts of the episode. <laughs> I, I love it so much. You know, it, uh, it it always gets me excited for the week to two weeks to come and see what film I'm going to have to look forward to because obviously all of the films that are on here are films that we look forward to in some form or another. And it's funny because once again, you know, to remind everybody or perhaps any new listeners, this film list is all over the place, right? Like we've got classics from Stanley Kubrick, like 2001. We've got B-grade genre crap like Chud, cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller. We've got some classic, you know, 70s romance uh, drama, you know, Harold and Maude. We've got classics in One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest. Just a banger, banger list. A lot of animation, too, as well. Uh, right now, I'm looking at The Secret of Nims. So you can go ahead to go to esotericacinema.com and play along at the end of the episode to see what we are going to pull. So, as always, we're going to consult our random.org, true random number generator. And we have a number 1 through 200 that corresponds to all of the movies on the list. We select our button right now, and as the wheel turns, we come back on number 43. 43. 43. So if you go to your list right now because you're on the website or you've got it downloaded and you go to 43, it's going to be an e-film. Now, right before that at 42, we have uh, one of Tim Burton's best films in Ed Wood, always a classic, and we also missed on the other side of this, Gaspar knows Enter the Void, which is a head trip movie that I've always wanted to see and never has. For now, we're going back to Mr. Alexander Payne's second film, if my memory serves me yeah, best. Yeah, baby. And we are going to look at Election, starring Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon. Oh, I'm so happy to get to watch this again. I have not seen this in years. <laughs> So, funny thing, I haven't seen this in years either. This was, I think, probably, dude, 20 years ago, something like that. Maybe even 25 at this point. Like, it's a long time. Oddly enough, this is another 1999 movie. We're doing two back-to-back. Nice, man. And interesting. And the funny thing, so I actually remember back in the day, like, not liking this film as much as everyone else. It was a film that I thought uh, was okay at the time. Um, but I didn't really embrace it the way that a lot of other oh, people did. Oh, I love this did. movie. Now, yeah. Now, now the Alexander Payne film that I really gravitated towards was Sideways, and I think that we've got that on a backup list, and maybe you know for season four we can end up getting that in here because that's a good one. But um, yeah, so but you know I think I saw it just the one time, and that was that. So going back to the movie now, you know, twenty twenty five years later. 
as an adult especially, I'm really looking forward to seeing if the film resonates me, with me further or if I have the same reaction. My life has just been littered with Tracy Flicks. Uh, played by Ray- Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> so I can just so relate. In the same way that you could relate to Salieri, um, I relate to Matthew Broderick's character in this film so much. So uh, <laughs> this is my Amadeus. Uh, when I saw this, I immediately just attached myself to this character where it's like, oh, would you just stop tormenting me? So <laughs> I do have a uh, quick synopsis here on Google That reads, Jim McAllister, played by Matthew Broderick, a well-liked high school government teacher, can't help but notice that successful student Tracy Flick, played by Reese Witherspoon, uses less than ethical tactics to get what she wants. When Tracy runs for school president, Jim feels that she will be a poor influence on the student body and convinces Paul, a dim-witted but popular student athlete, to run against Tracy. When she becomes aware of Jim's secret involvement in the race, a bitter feud is sparked. Yeah. From 99, directed by Alexander Payne, All the Things You Said. Can't wait to watch this again uh, and discuss it with you. I hope there's enough meat on this bone to really uh, tackle this from a filmmaking standpoint. I would dare say that Alexander Payne is enough of an auteur at this point uh, that we can get into this a little bit. I would think so. Yeah. Um, Are you a fan of many of his other films? So I'm I'm trying to recall. I, I don't know that I really stuck with him too much after Sideways, and I can't for the life of me remember what his first film was, but I feel like it was noteworthy. Do you remember? It's not Bottle Rocket, because that's Wes Anderson, but it's like in that vein. Citizen Ruth? Was that his first? Yeah. With Laura Dern? Looks like Citizen Ruth. Yeah, I never saw that and one. And then Election was his second, believe it or not. Yeah, I did. I did remember that it was his second film. So yeah, so I never saw Citizen Ruth. Uh, I didn't see anything after Sideways, so to answer your question, no, but again, I love Sideways, and uh, I know this film has a very solid reputation, and I know that he was kind of in that discussion, but just just outside of being one of the you know top-tier auteurs. Yeah, it looks like Citizen Ruth, uh, Election, and then About Schmidt, um, and then Sideways. About Schmidt, that's the other one I was trying to remember. Yeah. I knew there was one other noteworthy film. That was another one that I never checked out. People told, I heard, well, some people said it was really good. Some people said it was meh. I don't know why I never really got around to that one, but I would like to go back and check out that one, I think. Yeah, yeah. I um, I kind of remember that being somewhat meh as well, but I would also like to go back and watch that. I always get Alexander Payne mixed up with David O. Russell. Uh, those are the two that I kind of cross streams. You mentioned Wes Anderson. These They're all kind of like in that same auteur ilk uh, graduating class. You know, yeah, they all had all these came out around the weird same little quirky movies coming out at the same exact times, uh, you know, time period or whatever. Because um, I always think Alexander Payne directed I Heart Huckabees and he did not. That was David O. Russell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. Well, looking forward to it. So uh, to everybody who is listening, go ahead and check out Alexander Payne's election. And we will see you on the next episode of Esoterica Cinema. Thanks for listening.